Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35, and can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1004. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they said they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my, mo- my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Um, This passage we're looking at this evening is all about what it means to be part of the family of the king. Belonging to something, being a part of something, having a a sense of belonging, it seems to be a really important thing in society today. And I wonder if it's maybe taken even greater importance since the pandemic, where we saw the challenges and the negative effects of separation, of isolation, of being cut off 
from relationship with one another. Since moving to uh, Basingstoke, my wife and I have got involved with the park runs here in Basingstoke. Um, I say my wife and I. I've done one so far. Uh, Rosie's been a lot better um, than I have. And it's, it's really interesting. If you've ever done a park run or you've seen them happen, the, the just community feel that they create as people come together from across a town or area and enjoy that community, that sense of belonging, as park run brings people together. I wonder where it is that you find a sense of belonging in your life. Well, today, we hear about the greatest belonging that we can have. We see what it means to belong to the family of King Jesus, what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it doesn't. We see who's in and who's out. And as we go through, maybe it will be surprising and challenging because the people who we would expect to be in end up being out, And the people we might expect to be out end up being in. What does it mean to be part of the family of God? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to look at as we go through our passage this evening. And remember, as always, um, we're going to take time later on to answer any questions you might have. Um, So do follow the pigeonhole link if you've got questions that come up over the course of our time looking at this passage. Here's the first thing we're going to look at then. The followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus, verses 7 to 19. And as we first look at what it looks like to follow Jesus, we see both the positive and the negative. First, how not to follow Jesus, and then how to follow Jesus. First, how not to follow Jesus, verses 7 to 12. We see that the crowds flock to Jesus from far and wide. We're in Galilee, which is in the west of Israel. We're told people come to him from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, which is in the south of Israel. We're told people come from the regions across the Jordan, which is from the east of Israel. And we're told even from Tyre and Sidon, which is in the far north of the country. And yet... If we look closely at the reaction of Jesus, he doesn't seem that engaged with the people. Did you notice it? Verse 7, we're told right at the start, he withdraws from the crowds, yet they follow him. Verse 9, he asks for a small boat because they're crowding too close to him. Jesus doesn't seem that positive. Why not? What, What clues are there in the passage that might help us understand. Have a look at verse 8. When they, the crowd, heard all he was doing, many people came to him. Or verse 10. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. You see, it seems as if people are only interested in what Jesus is doing. It's the healings, the casting out of demons. And remember what we've seen already in our previous chapters in our time in Mark already. That isn't why Jesus has come. Do you remember back to chapter 1? Jesus actually again withdraws from the crowds and people find him and say, come on Jesus, you've got to come back. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to move on and I'm going to go and preach because that is why I have come. Jesus is more than just a healer. 
or a miracle worker. Jesus is the Son of God. He's God's King come to bring in God's kingdom. He comes to bring a message of forgiveness and repentance. That is who he is. That is why what he hears about as he comes. You see, there is a difference between flocking to Jesus because of what you think you can get from him and flocking to Jesus because of who he is. Let me say that again. There is a difference between flocking to Jesus because of what we can get from him and flocking to Jesus because of who he is. And the danger here is that people are only interested in what they can get from Jesus rather than Jesus himself. I wonder, can you ever be in danger of that? Interested in only what you can get from Jesus? It's a bit like a a friendship or a relationship or a marriage where where one partner is only interested in what they get from the other partner. (laughs) We'll all know it doesn't work like that. It's about them. The relationship won't work unless you're interested in them. And so we see in verses 13 to 19 the difference in how to follow Jesus. We see the geography changes. Jesus moves from the seashore up to the mountain. And he appoints the 12 disciples or apostles. And here there's, there's hints here of, of Jesus restoring the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God identified the 12 tribes of Israel representing his people with God as their leader. And here Jesus appoints the 12 disciples who will lead God's people from the start with Jesus as their leader. And so whilst these 12 were a unique 12, given unique responsibility to lead the charge, I think there are realities here that are true for all disciples, for all followers of Jesus Christ. So let's just highlight a few that we see in the passage. First, to be a follower of Jesus is to be wanted by Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to be wanted by Jesus. Do you see that in verse 13? Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. It's it's almost just a passing comment by Mark, yet it's quite incredible. He calls who he wanted. You, You see, it doesn't start with us. It's his initiative. It starts with him. He calls and we follow. And maybe that is the one encouragement you need this evening. Please, please let that be an encouragement. If you are sat here as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, believing and trusting in him, it's because he wants you. He comes. He reaches out to us. Followers of Jesus are wanted by Jesus. Second, don't miss the first thing he asks his disciples to do. Do you see it in verse 14? He appointed 12, designating them disciples, that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Followers of Jesus are to be with Jesus. 
That is the priority to Jesus. Be with me. So don't jump to the things that we are called to do for Jesus as a disciple. Now, don't forget those, fir- those three words that come first. Be with him. Not what you can get from me. Not even primarily about what I call you to do. No, first be with me. Spend time with me. And whatever you do as my disciples, do it with me. Don't make the mistake of being so busy for the Lord that you forget to be with the Lord. I wonder what that might look like for you. Maybe it's a call or or a reminder or a challenge to, to start every day spending time with Jesus. Before you get on with the busyness of the day, however busy or not the day might look, to just stop and to hear from Jesus as he speaks through his word, the Bible to speak to him in prayer, to spend time with him. Maybe it's during the course of a day, and so whatever the day might look like, especially in the busyness of it, to be mindful to be with Jesus, to be prayerful throughout whatever you might be doing. Maybe it's here. Maybe the challenge lies for you here, whenever you're at church, whatever you might be doing if you're serving in a different area, to do it with Jesus rather than simply doing it for Jesus. Followers of Jesus are to be with Jesus. And then Mark gives us the the list, the names of the 12 disciples. Um, I don't know if you've ever done any kind of uh, personality test or or team roles test. I remember uh, a few years back doing a a test to find our team roles to work out what our role might be, be like in the team. It seems to be a bit of a buzz thing. The importance of getting the team right, the importance of the makeup of the team, getting the right people in the right positions. We were put it put to it was put to us as getting the right people in the right seats on the right bus. We don't get much info here on the 12, just names. But what we do know of them, there's not much special about them. It doesn't seem like Jesus did any kind of personality test or team roles test when he picked them. Peter, he's a fisherman. He's uneducated. James and John, we're told, are given the nickname Sons of Thunder, probably referring to their fiery temper. Matthew or or Levi, we met a few weeks ago, The tax collector, a sinner, a reject. Thomas, what do we all know about Thomas? He's a doubter. It's not a spectacular bunch. Not the obvious 12 to pick. Yet Jesus picks them. And through these 12, the whole world is changed. I wonder how you see yourself this evening. Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. What have I got to offer him? I just can't be very useful to him. Jesus wants you. Maybe, dare I say it, maybe sometimes you feel out of place here at church. I'm just not educated enough. I'm not nice enough. 
I'm not gifted enough. I don't say the right things. I'm, I'm too sinful. I, I've got too many doubts. Please don't think that. <laughs> Look at these 12. You fit right in. Spend time with Jesus. Be ready to be used by Jesus. I remember a few years ago, someone said to me, Jesus isn't interested in your ability. He's interested in your availability. Jesus isn't interested in your ability. He's interested in your availability. So first, we see the followers of Jesus. And then second, we see the family of Jesus, verses 20 to 35. And in this section, the lines are drawn. The lines are drawn between those who are following Jesus and those who are rejecting Jesus. And we see that those who we would expect to be Jesus' biggest supporters end up rejecting him. Those who we would have thought would be insiders end up being on the outside. And this section has a a sandwich structure to it. I don't think that's the technical name for it, but it helps to make sense in my brain anyway. It's a popular way of writing that Mark uses at least six times in his gospel, where he takes two stories and he intertwines them. So he starts with one, and he leaves it and moves on to the second before coming back to the first one. And he does it to show a link between the two stories. So understand one often the outside one or or the bread in the analogy, by seeing what happens in the other story, the meat. So let's start with the meat, which is all about Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders in verses 22 to 30. Do you notice (laughs) Jesus has made such an impact that a delegation come up from Jerusalem and they challenge Jesus, verse 22. Teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Do you see what the accusation is? It's not a denial that he's driving out demons. The question isn't if he can do it. It's a bit like last week. Do you remember when he was healing the man and the people didn't doubt whether he could heal him? They wanted to see whether he would heal him. And similarly here, it's not that they deny if he can do it. No, it's by whose power can he do it? Because to drive out demons can only be done by a supernatural power. That was known. It can only be done by God or Satan. Their conclusion, it must be done by the power of Beelzebub. Another name for the prince of demons. Another name for Satan. And just as an aside here, do you, do you notice that people in Jesus' day didn't doubt the reality of Satan or evil? And I wonder if um, in our kind of modern Western culture, there'll be, it can seem quite an odd phenomenon to us. And, and I often think we can be in danger of downplaying the reality. Whereas for other areas of the world, this will be very usual. And in fact, maybe could be in danger of overplaying it. To the people in Jesus' day, this wasn't unusual. 
But Jesus responds by showing them the flawed logic in their thinking. He says it doesn't make sense what you're saying, verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? You're saying I'm from Satan, but I'm going around driving out Satan's demons. It doesn't make sense. You're talking about a divided kingdom, a divided house. Why would Satan do that? That would only result in him losing. It's like soaring off the branch that you're sitting on. It's like suing yourself. It's like a country declaring war on itself. It's ridiculous. Now, Jesus shows what is going on in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Jesus isn't giving tips on how to burgle. Let me make that clear. He gives a picture of what's going on. He says a stronger man is coming to bind up the strong man and to take his stuff. Here is what Jesus is doing in relation to Satan. Satan is strong. He he does have power. But he's no match for Jesus. Jesus is stronger. He binds up Satan and he is releasing the people that have been caught by Satan. God's kingdom is being built. Satan's kingdom is being plundered. Someone stronger has come. And then do you see Jesus go on the offensive in verses 28 to 30? Have a look at these verses. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. There's a stunning irony in these verses. These are the religious leaders. Their role is to point people to God. And yet here they're saying that God's son is motivated by evil, not good. By Satan, not by God. By an evil spirit, not by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says they are guilty of the unforgivable sin. Now, there can be a lot of worry amongst Christians today as to whether they've committed the unforgivable sin. So let's note a few things about these verses that hopefully will help us and be an encouragement to us. Let's notice the context. The unforgivable sin here, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's an unbelief that refuses to call what Jesus does as good and instead calls it evil. It's to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's to not acknowledge God for who he is and to think and say he is someone he is not. That is what the teachers of the law have done. That is what Jesus makes clear in verse 30. The claim from the, people, the teachers of the law is that Jesus has an evil spirit. And so therefore, If you are here as a Christian trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are worrying that you have committed this sin, then in a way, by worrying about it, it shows that you have not committed this sin. 
Because if you had, you wouldn't worry about it. You would be convinced that Jesus is not who he says he is. That in fact he is evil. Also, don't miss the beautiful, wonderful hope and goodness in verse 28. Jesus says there is forgiveness available to all who repent and believe in him. And forgiveness is seen throughout the pages of Scripture. Do you remember Paul? Who went out of his way to deny who Jesus was and to shut down the church in any way he could. And yet in meeting Jesus, realized that Jesus really is the Son of God. And so fell on his knees and repented and asked for forgiveness. Or Peter, as we carry on through Mark, we see how he denies Jesus at Jesus' most desperate point of need as he's being taken to the cross. And yet Jesus restores him, and he goes on to lead the early church. Forgiveness is available to all. Grace is available to all. As the words of the song in To God Be the Glory say, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment, from Jesus, a pardon receives. So there's the meat, the confrontation with the teachers of the law, and it helps us to see what's going on with the bread, Jesus' family, before and after. And so in verse 21, they want to take charge of Jesus. They think he's out of his mind. And so then, verse 31 to 32, they come to take him. You see, They miss the point of Jesus. They want to silence him. Jesus' family are rejecting Jesus too at this point. And Jesus' reaction is striking in verses 33 to 35. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mothers. Don't miss the shock in what he says here, especially in the first century ancient Near East culture, where where the family unit was the core of your identity. But don't miss the beauty in what Jesus says about those who are seated around him. Jesus shows the contrast between his family who are on the outside and his spiritual family who are sitting around him. The presumed insiders, the religious leaders, become outsiders. And the outsiders, the tax collectors, the sinners, become insiders. Jesus is creating a new family. A new family that is closer than a biological family. And Jesus is inviting us to be a part of that family, a family where we get to call him brother, a family where we get to call God our father. Jesus loves us as a part of his own family. You see, Jesus is creating a family that goes beyond any kind of biological or genetic or ethnic ties. A family that is made up of totally different people 
young and old, male and female, different ethnic backgrounds, different class backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different educational backgrounds. This is the family that Jesus is building. I wonder if you've seen the film Remember the Titans. It's a good film. It works for this illustration. So I made Rosie watch it on Friday night. Um, I think she enjoyed it too. Um, Remember the Titans. It's, It's about the true story of a black American football high school coach. He's tasked with leading the American football team, the high school team, after the integration of two schools, a black school and a white school. And so it shows the struggle to break down the social barriers that existed at that time in Virginia in the 1970s. Without giving too much away, at the end of the film, Jerry Bertier, who is the main player, uh, the leading player from the white team, the white school, is involved in a car accident and is lying in hospital. His former rival player, Julius Campbell, comes to visit him. He's the main player from the previous black school, from the black team. And as he walks into the hospital room, the nurse stops him and says, I'm afraid it's family over, only. And Jerry Bertier interrupts the nurse and says, don't you see the family resemblance? He's my brother. It's a wonderful moment as you've seen the course of the film, as it's broken down the racial barriers between these two teams. When we are adopted as children of God, we come into the family of God, the church family. We gain a whole new family, loads of brothers and sisters. And so it's a wonderful privilege to be able to go anywhere in the world and know that we can find brothers and sisters anywhere we go. And that is what we want to grow here, right? A family here at St. Mary's. And so it is so important that we continue meeting together as family. Can I challenge you to get to know your church family better? After the service, stick around, chat to one another. Maybe this is unfair of me, but here's the challenge for this evening. Can I challenge you to chat to someone you've never chatted before here at St. Mary's and get to know them? And if that challenge isn't enough, here's the next challenge. As you're chatting to them, let's get past the kind of British politeness that just asked about the last week. Let's ask them their greatest joys, the sorrows that they've gone through recently. Because the New Testament talks of family being those that can mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And as I finish, let's also remember that for some, this new family comes at the cost of losing their biological family. And I'm sure in a a church our size, that'll be true for people here. Those who have, in making their decision to become a Christian, have faced rejection from their own family. And so for some, this is their only family now. And so will we love each other? Will we look out for each other? 
Will we care for each other, knowing that we are adopted children of God and brothers and sisters? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that as Jesus comes and brings in your kingdom, he builds a new family. Thank you that you, as you take us and adopt us as your children, we enter into this new family. So we can call you Father, we can call Jesus our brother, and we can call fellow Christians our sisters and our brothers. Father, help us to cultivate and develop here at St. Mary's a real, a real family, one that we can really look out for each other and love and care for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you all for submitting uh, your questions on Pigeon Hill. I've got some really interesting questions that I'm quite looking forward to hearing the answers to. <laughs> um, so, really, to start with, we've had a couple of questions on this idea of um, evil spirits or impure spirits, mm. um, which is kind of from uh, verse 11. Um, so, one person asked, some translations call them impure rather than evil. Is there any significant difference there? Someone else asked, um, hasn't, uh, in the modern day, um, has this not explained that the e- these evil spirits were really people suffering from mental health issues and conditions? How do we understand evil spirits today is it actually just mental health yeah great um so the first one some translate the difference in translation impure spirits or evil spirits i don't think well i don't think there's a difference in terms of two different categories of spirits evil or impure it's trying to encapsulate the same the impure spirit is an evil spirit and so um no i don't think there's two different categories um that other question, hasn't, modern day, hasn't the modern day explained that evil spirits are really people suffering from mental health issues and conditions? Um, I don't think so. Um, well, maybe I can be a bit stronger. No. Um, I think that there might be some kind of overlap, and so those who are experiencing or, or an evil spirit may have mental health issues and vice versa, but to kind of draw a straight line between the two, I think, would be unwise. Um, You can see the real danger of doing that, that therefore anyone who might have a mental health issue, you could be saying has an evil spirit, which I I don't just think is is wrong. Um, So there's a real danger of that. And I, I just don't see that happening through Scripture. You don't see that kind of diagnosis happening. I, I think there's a danger in the West that we, we fail to acknowledge the reality of the evil realm. I don't think we necessarily fail to acknowledge evil. We see wrong around the world, and, and over the last few months, it's very, been very apparent that um, events around the world have been called evil, and rightly so. And so I think we then fail to kind of make that connection and go, because there is a real evil um, presence here in the world that explains the evil we see. So it actually helps us understand evil and hopefully points us to the goodness of the Holy Spirit and Jesus who comes to defeat all evil. Um, So I, I think we need to be better 
in the Western culture are acknowledging that. Um, and I think we need to be very, very careful of trying to draw a line between evil spirits and the effect on them and someone suffering from um, a mental health illness. I think we need to be very careful about that. Feel free to step in as, as a medic yeah. if there's anything you wanted to... Yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. I think um, possibly in the past, I guess in more kind of modern history, um, we can look back and recognise that mental, health, mental illnesses were under you know, were not understood and were possibly called, um, you know, looked at in ways that wasn't, wasn't fair. But I think, um, yeah, it's definitely not, not right to equate those two things. And I think to say that we can now kind of um, understand evil as just being part of an illness, I think, is also not, um, not accurate. And, yeah, it's not fair uh, for people who do have mental health issues. Mm. Great. Yeah. yeah. So another question someone, someone's asked, this is referring to what you're saying about um, Jesus calling those he wants to himself. Um, does that mean that Jesus only sort of wants some people to follow him and not everyone? Yeah, great question. Um, no, I think he, he wants everyone to follow him. And you see that in different parts of scripture. So you think of, in one sense, the potentially most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for them. He, he wants everyone to come to know him. And you go later on in scripture and it talks about God being patient with us because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to, know, to the knowledge of Jesus. Yet the reality is, and we've seen it already in Mark, and we see it as we look out into the streets of Basingstoke, not everyone does follow Jesus. And so as Jesus goes through his ministry, we see him, as people reject him, in one sense, Jesus rejects them. But they have made the decision to reject him. And so as people reject him, or come to him for the wrong reasons, as we looked at in the passage, he goes, look, if, if you're coming to me for the wrong reasons, or you're not interested in me, teachers of the law, I want those who do want to follow me who do acknowledge me for who I am. So no, I think Jesus wants all, or the Bible says, Jesus wants all to follow him, and God wants all to be saved. And yet there's a reality that in the Bible and in the world around us, people are rejecting Jesus. And so as people reject Jesus, Jesus goes, well, if you don't want me, I want, I want you to come and follow me, those who come to follow him. Thanks, Willie. So leading on from what you were um, kind of, touched on there about people following Jesus sort of for the wrong reasons. Um, someone asked, don't we all partly follow Jesus for selfish reasons? For instance, we want to go to heaven, we want to be forgiven, we, you know, if we're Christians, we know that this is the best route for us. So are we all not partly selfish in our kind of motivations for following Jesus? Yeah, really good question and well picked up on. And I grappled with this over the week as I was preparing this. And if you notice, I was very carefully in my wording as I, as I talked about it. And let me read it out from my notes again. I, I made sure I was very careful to say, are you interested in only what you can get from Jesus? And I want to emphasize that because there is a sense, rightly as the question says, that I am interested in what I get from Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, a place in heaven assured, eternity with Jesus Christ. I want that. And that is good. But if that's all I'm interested in, and yet don't see who Jesus is and attracted to him, then I think we're missing 
Jesus. And so as Jesus comes and says, look, I offer forgiveness of sins. I offer a place in heaven forever, and you can have me. As we see Jesus in Mark, hopefully we're going, Jesus is amazing. Not just what Jesus offers is amazing, but Jesus is amazing. And so that's why I want, I maybe should have emphasized it more, but I was careful to say, can you be interested in only what you can get from Jesus? Be interested in Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. And in one sense, the knock-on effects are what you enjoy from Jesus as well. But enjoy a relationship with Jesus, not just what you get from him. So it is the both and, but make sure it's both and, and not just, great, heaven's secured, sin's forgiven, not too bothered about that guy, Jesus. Enjoy Jesus, spend time with him. That's great, and we've got um, one final very important question. Um, If you initially commit this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and you then have a change of heart and repent of your sins and become a Christian, are you still not forgiven? Because it does sound quite final in the passage. How do we understand that? Yeah, yeah, good. It sounds quite final, and I think it sounds final because the teachers of the law's position is final. So there's almost a stubbornness in the teachers of the law that go, this is who we think you are. You're not from God, you're from Satan. You've not got the Holy Spirit, you've got an evil spirit. That is our final decision on you. And Jesus turns around and goes, that's your final decision. You will never be forgiven if that is your final decision. And yet we also know that if you come to God and repent, and so, look, at the end of the day, we, were all, we are all called to repent and believe in Jesus because before that there was a time when we didn't trust in Jesus for who he was. And yet there's a moment where we go, no, that's wrong. I repent of that belief and I come to Jesus because I do trust that he is the Son of God that he has died on the cross for my sins, and therefore Jesus offers forgiveness. And so that's where hopefully I showed we need to be really careful not to lose verse 28 when we read verse 29 and see that forgiveness is available for all who come to Jesus and repent. The issue is the teachers of the Lord don't come to Jesus and repent. They're stubborn in their unbelief, or they're stubborn in their belief, but wrong belief, that Jesus is not from God, he's from Satan. And because of that, that is unforgivable. Yet if we repent and see who Jesus is, then the Bible's so, so clear, forgiveness is available for all. That's great, thanks for doing that. That's really reassuring as well.